You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A universe of Hollywood storytelling and intrigue awaits you now. Unlock the secret history of Hollywood by going to patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Within 24 hours, Hollywood was crawling with the news that James Cagney had walked out of Warner Brothers. This was uncharted territory. Bigger, more established stars than Cagney had walked out on their studios, but eventually they'd always come back, cap in hand. The difference in this case was that Jimmy was still the new kid around here. He'd been in Hollywood for less than a year, and everything he'd touched had turned to gold. This was no aging matinee idol who relied on the career he'd been fostering for decades. His career at Warner Brothers meant about as much to him as a job packing bags at a supermarket. He simply hadn't been there long enough to plant roots yet. Everyone had an opinion, and over the decadent dinner tables of Hollywood's elite, battle lines were drawn and crossed, as actors, actresses, directors, producers and crew alike all argued their viewpoints. Cagney was a hero. Cagney was a monster. Cagney was a man of principles. Cagney was ungrateful. But there was one point upon which all sides of the argument agreed. No one had ever taken on a studio and won. From the sidelines, performers unhappy with their current contracts watched in hope, while producers, nervous at the growing unrest, watched with concern. For his part, Jack L. Warner seeped carefully designed phrases to the newspapers. The thing that hurt the most was that he was a James Cagney fan, he sighed. If anything, the whole situation was more disappointing than anything else. After all, young James had been like a son to him. Hadn't he agreed to his current weekly salary when he signed his contract? Maybe if he discussed things with Jack, then some arrangement could have been made for a future contract. Right now, Jack was hurting, but he was willing to forgive the wayward Warner son. If only he'd come home. Almost a week after Jimmy had left town, the Hollywood Reporter devoted an entire column to the controversy, an open letter written to Jimmy by their publisher, Billy Wilkerson. Dear Jimmy, it began, we heard Saturday that you'd walked out of Warner to return only when your salary demands were met. Tried to reach you on the phone for confirmation of this, but was advised that the number had been disconnected. Not knowing your home address, we are using this means to reach you. Producers, Jimmy, for the most part, are a bad lot when it comes to talking salary. They're doing everything they can to trim the weekly paychecks of all employees down to a pretty low basis. We are not for the producers in this wage-cutting war. We are of the opinion that every person has his value, And in order for the business to continue, full payment must be made for value received. 
Wilkerson then went on to list others around the industry who were currently seeing their wage bills slashed, but who were sticking around to get the job done. He further explained that other stars would have worked for nothing to play in the plum roles that Jimmy had had. The point of this whole thing, Jimmy, Wilkerson concluded, is to give you an impartial view of your present condition. Don't walk out on Warners. That's bad. You are not sufficiently strong at the present time to do that walkout number. Others stronger than you have tried it and have checked in behind the eight ball. They don't need you so much at the present time. You're not big enough. We think you have a great future that may be spoiled by your present actions. Take what they are giving you at the present and like it. Jimmy and Bill, who'd returned back to the Cagney apartment in New York, where space was even more limited than before, were shown a copy of the article by a stormy Carolyn. Bill scanned it and frowned. Jimmy threw it a passing glance and dropped it into the trash. So what are you going to do for work? asked Carolyn, her fists on her hips and a fine Irish scarlet in her cheeks. Jimmy shrugged. Don't really know yet. Probably go back to the theatres. Carolyn threw up her hands and groaned. Ugh, more theatre jobs. Sweeping floors and pulling ropes. And I suppose Bill here will be dancing in her tutu again. Who knows, smiled Jimmy. I might go to college like Bill and Harry, be a doctor, be a lawyer. I've always had a yen to plant things. What do you mean, plant things, said Carolyn. Like a farmer? Sure. She crossed the room and flung open a window, pointing to the panorama beyond. A soot-stained jungle of boxy grey buildings and cast-iron trimmings. You may not have noticed, Jim, but the ground here is not so fertile. A farmer, indeed. She closed her eyes and sighed. Jimmy felt Bill take his hand. He turned and smiled, then, out of the corner of his eye, saw his twelve-year-old sister, Jean, peeking at the scene from behind the doorframe. She blushed and grinned, and Jimmy winked at her. "'What were you thinking, Jim?' said Carolyn. "'You had a great job and you threw it away. You're so good that you're famous. Mrs. Abramchick in number 15, you're her favourite actor.' Jimmy laughed and placed his hands on his mother's shoulders. "'Listen, sweetheart.' I'll tell you exactly what I'm doing. I'm following a very good piece of advice from someone I trust. To rise above in this world, you just fight. You must tear and claw and fight and never stop. Carolyn smiled. What fool told you that? The prettiest fool in New York, he said, kissing her cheek. Now look, I'm worth more than what they're paying me, that's all. If they don't pay me right, then I won't work for them. I'm not being a snob about it. I just don't like being a sucker for those rich, tanned boys in the offices. I'm doing all the work, and they're getting all the money. He looked over at Jean, who ducked quickly behind the doorframe again. You wouldn't want some millionaire making Jean dig his flower beds for ten cents a day, would you? It's the same thing, and if they don't kick in with the money, then I'll do something else. Now, will you stop worrying? We have a few bucks. We're not going to starve. He turned to Bill and Jean. Now everyone, put your church clothes on. We're going out for dinner. Perhaps if things had remained just so, then neither side would have budged. The flames of argument would have died slowly down. 
and the film career of James Cagney would today be seen as one of those interesting flourishes of early cinema, where a newborn star that promised much flared into light, suddenly dimmed, and then vanished into the footnotes of textbooks. But there was another element to be reckoned with. I like you, Anne, really. You know, you're the first girl that ever socked me for going for. Yes? Mm-hmm. You know, honey, I'd like to have you sock me like that every day. Oh, would you? Sure, honey. I'd love it. <laughs> what a woman. Before Jimmy had walked out on Warner Brothers, he'd spent a fortnight in the company of Joan Blondell, filming a light-hearted romantic comedy about a pair of con artists who team up to swindle the man that swindled them first. Larceny Lane had been written by Kubek Glassman and John Bright, the writers of The Public Enemy. And while this particular story was less controversial, it moved just as quickly. Cagney and Blondell practically popped around the screen, and most importantly, everyone loved it. Cagney was almost a month into his self-imposed exile by the time the film hit cinemas in December of 1931, carrying with it a new title, Blonde Crazy. Jimmy had almost forgotten the film existed and was only reminded of it when out for a walk with Bill one evening he noticed a seemingly endless line of people queuing at the local picture house and looked up to see his own name there. The lines of people, it seemed, were not just exclusive to this theatre. With the public enemy still playing to sold-out houses, anticipation was high among theatregoers for the next Cagney movie, and they weren't disappointed. Time magazine called it a chipper, hard-boiled, amusing essay on petty thievery. James Cagney has a role in which he's much more mischievous than wicked. He makes rascality seem both easy and attractive, as he did in The Public Enemy and Smart Money. The New York Times said, Mr. Cagney is as alert and pugnacious as he was in the quick-thinking young gangster of The Public Enemy. Within a day, Blonde Crazy had made back its shooting budget. Within a week, the cash still pouring into Warner Brothers had convinced Jack L. Warner that this boy was no flash in the pan. Here was a bankable megastar who in one year had become the highest earning star at his studio. As much as it pained him to admit it, he needed James Cagney back immediately. Jimmy got the telegram the following morning asking him to hurry back to Hollywood for urgent contract negotiations. Bill read the message and gasped in shock. You did it, she said. I don't know how, but you did it. Seems so. <laughs> My God, we have so much to do. We need to get your clothes together. What for? What, what for? So that we can get on the train to California today. Jimmy waved her away. I'm not going to California today. My mother bought a chicken for dinner tonight. Bill watched him plunge his hands into his pockets and followed him through the apartment as he whistled. He leaned his head into Jean's bedroom. What do you hear? he said. Jean was sat on a small knitted rug on the floor. In one hand, a battered blue copy of Ivanhoe that she stared at. In the other, half a plum. Hey, she said. I saw your new movie last night. Uh-huh. What are you reading? Ivanhoe. Hey, did you see Joan Blondell naked in the bathtub? Nope. 
Is it your homework or something? Yeah. Hey, did she have a bathing suit on at all? I don't know. I didn't see her, remember? What do you have to do? Read it and then write a report on it or something? Uh-huh. Paulina in my class wants to marry you, by the way. Is she pretty? Jean shrugged. Guess so. Jimmy turned to Bill and winked. You have competition. Bill held up the telegram. What the hell are you going to do about this? She said. Relax. William's in California. I'll get him to talk to them for me. He turned to Jean. Hey, Dimples, he said. Bring your homework into the kitchen and let's take a look at it. And you, he said, turning to Bill and kissing her cheek. Stop worrying about everything or I'll marry Paulina. You will not, said Jean as she passed them both. She's only 13. I'm a patient man, grinned Jimmy, marching comically behind her. That telegram proves it. The brief to William Cagney was simple. Jimmy wanted his pay to increase to $800 per week. He also wanted clauses written into his contract prohibiting him from making public appearances for other people's movies. And he wanted to be out of the studio by 6 p.m. every day. Those were his terms, he told William. If they weren't interested, then he was going to college to become a doctor. For the next two days, he and Bill took walks, cooked for Carolyn and Jean, and caught a stage show. They walked for hours through the city, shopped for Christmas presents at Macy's, drank in the architecture, the sounds of traffic, of gangs playing baseball with sticks in the alleys, and ate nothing but donuts and coffee and hot dogs as they watched the snow on the streets turn from a powder-white floss to asphalt fudge. New York City was like an adrenaline shot to these visitors from California, and at least once each they both silently wondered if a life in the movies was worth the pain of leaving again. At 10 p.m. on the second day, Jimmy called William from a payphone, loading a dozen or so coins into the slot to pay for the call. Jim? Came his brother's voice. Billy, had your dinner yet? I need it. It's been a hell of a day. How long did it all take? About ten minutes. Ten minutes, said Jimmy. There's me picturing you having to argue all night. How did it go? They agreed to the clauses. You don't have to make any more public appearances to promote movies that aren't your own. Plus, they'll move heaven and earth to get you off the lot for six, but they said you may have to make allowances now and then. It sounded reasonable enough to me. I guess so. And how about the money? Uh, that part didn't go as well, he said. Did you tell them that I wanted 800 a week? I didn't get the chance. As soon as money came up, they told me they'd already decided on a figure and that they would most definitely not budge on it, even if it meant losing you as a performer. I'm sorry, Jim, but it was nowhere near 800. Uh, well, that's that then, I guess. Jim, they've decided to pay you $1,000 a week. And they will not budge on that number, even if it means losing you as a performer. In a New York phone booth on a crisp winter evening, James Cagney sank to the floor and began to shriek in laughter. (laughs) 
Jack Warner Jr. had spent much of the week trying to secure an audience with his father, and after being brushed off several times by nervous-looking secretaries, he decided to try the old-fashioned route and camped outside his father's office door. The secretary on duty that day typed deliberately and carefully, looking up now and then with alarm in her eyes. Jack Jr. turned a book in his hands and watched as she glanced now and then at the door to his father's office. He knows I'm here, right? he said. I told him you were here a short while ago, she replied. Could you tell him again? The girl frowned slightly, looked at the door once more, and pressed a button. A few moments later, he heard his father's breathless voice. What? He snapped through the small speaker on the girl's desk. I said no calls. Your son is still here, she said. Tell him to go away. I'm going to be busy all day. I'll wait, called Jack Jr. I need to talk to you. No, Jackie. I'm busy today. Come back tomorrow. Jack Jr. crossed to the desk and leaned over the microphone. I'm going to wait right here until you come out. Take your time. I'm in no rush. A brief moment passed, and then he heard a long, crackled sigh. Fine. Just... just... wait a moment. I'll buzz you in. With a snap, the line went dead and Jack Jr. smiled at the girl who glanced once more at the door. Two minutes later, a buzzer broke the air, and Jack Jr. entered his father's office to find him breathlessly glancing around the room. Jack's shirt was open at the neck, and his cuffs were unbuttoned. He regarded his son with unbridled annoyance. What do you want, Jackie? I'm busy today. (laughs) Wow. You should crack a window. It's so hot in here. What do you want? His father repeated. I found a great story for you, said Jack Jr. He held out a book. His father took it and sighed in irritation. I am a fugitive from a Georgia chain gang, he read. What the hell is this? I just finished it. Seriously, it'd make an incredible movie. You need to read it. This is seriously why you had to disturb me today. You couldn't have waited until you saw me at home? You haven't been home for two days, said Jack Jr. Where have you been? Jack glared at his son, his eyes flitting to his private bathroom door. Pressed against the back of the door was his latest conquest, the half-naked Anne Page, an exotic brunette who'd caught Jack's eye at a party, and the wife of former screen idol Don Alvarado. Silently, she pulled on her clothes, while straining to hear the conversation between the two men in the office. Work's crazy, he said to his son. You should know that. You work here. He frowned. You still work here, right? I'm an assistant director, said Jack Jr. Right, right, so you know how busy it is, said Jack. We've been concerned, Mum and me. Your mother worries too much about everything, said Jack. You just take yourself home and tell her that I'm fine. Everything is fine. I'll come home tonight and we'll all have a little talk, okay? Okay, great. How about the book? Sure, the book. Jack picked it up and looked it over. Fine, we'll make a picture if you think it's good. We'll make a picture, all right. I trust your judgment. 
I want you to read it, said Jack Jr. Dad, it'll change your life. It's a true story about a guy who got railroaded onto a chain gang and escaped. And now he... Sounds great, said Jack, glancing at the bathroom door. It sounds great. Just the kind of thing that I like. He turned the book in his hand and then wedged it into the books on his bookcase. So you'll read it, said Jack Jr. I don't read, Jackie. I don't have time to read. Jack Jr. frowned and looked at his father's bookcase. Anita Luz, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Agatha Christie. You go down to the story department, you tell them all about the book, said Jack. Tell them to make me a half-page synopsis and send it up to me. Okay, said Jack Jr. And go right now, won't you, said Jack. I am itching to read that thing. I think you'll love it, said Jack Jr. It's really got everything. It's exciting and tense and shocking. You won't believe what happened to this guy. It's an outrage. Sounds great, said Jack again. Hey, you should call your Uncle Harry and tell him all about this. He loves all that social conscience shit. Now, you just run along and I'll see you at dinner tonight. The film, released later that year, tells the story of a soldier, James Allen, who returns from the battlefields of World War I to a life of restlessness and poverty. Folks here are concerned with my uniform, how I dance. I'm out of step with everybody. And all the while, I was hoping to come home and start a new life, to be free. And again, I find myself under orders, a drab routine, cramped mechanical, even worse than the army. And you, all of you, trying your darndest to map out my future, to harness me and lead me around to do what you think is best for me. It doesn't occur to you that I've grown. One night, he inadvertently stumbles into a robbery and finds himself sentenced to ten years on a chain gang. How can anybody eat a mess like this? Why do you take that slime if you're going to spit it out every morning? I'm practicing. The last day of my year here, I'm going to spit it right in the warden's kitchen. Yeah? Well, you'll blind him for life. The men are routinely subjected to beatings and mental torture as a way of dominating their spirits. And driven to breaking point, Alan frantically devises a plan of escape and breaks out, sparking a nationwide manhunt. While on the run, he meets a boarding house proprietor who discovers his secret and blackmails him into an unhappy marriage. When he asks her for a divorce, she betrays him to the authorities, who in turn betray him into returning to his chain gang to see out a reduced sentence. He soon discovers, however, that he's been sold a lie, and in revenge for having broken out, the authorities plan to extend his sentence on the gang. Breaking out once more, Alan becomes a shadow, trusting no one and settling nowhere, his future uncertain. I hide in rooms all day and travel by night. No friends, no rest, no peace. Oh, Jim. Keep moving. That's all that's left for me. It was all going to be so different. It is different. They've made it different. I've got to go. I can't let you go like this. Can't you tell me where you're going? Will you ride? The tale was based on the real-life exploits of Robert Elliot Burns, 
a shell-shocked veteran of World War I who became a hobo after finding it impossible to fit into American society, and wound up on a Georgia chain gang after being imprisoned for stealing five dollars. In the movie, James Allen flees to an undetermined fate, whereas in real life, Burns fled to the arms of his brother, an Episcopal priest, Vincent Burns, who urged Robert to turn his experiences into a book, exposing the brutal practices of the backwater American justice system. It was this text that Jack Jr. presented to his father in his office that day, and when the film was released later that year, such was the public's reaction to its central character's horrifying ordeal that the issue of chain gangs became 1932's national outrage. Surely the pictures on the screen couldn't be happening in real life. Beaten, diseased, broken men chained together at the heel, worked to the point of collapse under the cruel heat of a Georgia sun, ridiculed and thrashed by gangs of laughing sadists, and fed on a diet of putrid water, grease, fried dough, pig's fat and sorghum, a grass plant rich in hydrogen cyanide that these days is generally used to produce biofuels. During downtime, the men were flogged by tanned leather straps or bound at the throat with rope to makeshift crucifixes for days at a time. Back in 1921, a North Dakota boy named Martin Tabbert had hopped a freight train hoping to ride home, having run out of cash. He was quickly apprehended by a guard and imprisoned in Leon County on the charge of vagrancy. The court convened a few days later and quickly judged that Tabbert should pay a fine of $25 or be sentenced to three months' hard labor. Tabbert immediately wired home to his family, requesting the funds to pay the fine. His panicked family sent $25 plus another $25 to cover his rail fare home. But a week passed, and the money, for whatever reason, did not make its way into the hands of the Leon County Court. Tabbert was dragged, weeping, from his cell and placed in the custody of a guard who spirited him quickly to Dixie County, 60 miles south of Tallahassee, where he was assigned to work among a gang of convicts on behalf of the Putnam Lumber Company. From his first moment there, he was driven with the other men to the swamp where they spent upwards of 14 hours a day cutting and clearing timber, staggering and gasping through waist-high stagnant waters thick with filth and bacteria. A week after arriving, Tabbert collapsed at his boss's feet, a hideous wreck of fever headaches and bleeding sores. The boss, one Walter Higginbotham, dragged Tabbert up by his hair, threw him against a tree, and began to flog the skeletal, screaming boy with a five-foot-long leather strap. 
Forty agonizing blows later, Martin Tabbert collapsed into the mud, mute from shock. Get up, spat his boss, and when Tabbert failed to answer, Higginbotham placed one boot on Tabbert's neck and proceeded to lash him again. Forty more sickening cracks of the strap and the life of young Martin Tabbert came to an end in the dark swamplands of Florida. When Tabbert's clothes were removed by doctors some hours later, they reported that his skin was all off his back in one chunk, from his shoulders to his knees. The case caused a scandal at the time, and was labelled nationally as Florida's disgrace. But further outrage occurred when some months later, the man responsible, Walter Higginbotham, was acquitted of first-degree murder and allowed to walk free. Because of the public outcry at the court's decision, Governor Kerry Hardy signed a bill forbidding the flogging of prisoners from then on. But the eyes of America could not keep watch upon every mistreated soul in the justice system. And behind closed doors, the punishments insidiously continued. In the spring of 1932, a 19-year-old man named Arthur Mailfurt had arrived in shackles at the Sunbeam prison camp near Jacksonville. This cheerfully named establishment was, as it turned out, anything but. The Sunbeam prison camp was regularly referred to, even by those who ran it, as a hell hole on earth. The camp itself consisted of little more than a stockade, a few guard buildings, and a large pen where two intensely trained bloodhounds were always kept the wrong side of Hungary. The camp was ruled by George Corson, a 285-pound monster of a man built of spit and iron. He was aided day to day by his cruel lieutenant, Solomon Higginbotham, who remarkably shared a surname with the man who flogged young Martin Tabbert to death a decade earlier, although when later questioned, he claimed it as a complete coincidence. From the moment that Arthur Mailfurt arrived at Sunbeam, Corson and Higginbotham had decided that he was going to be trouble. Mailfurt, a convicted robber, had already escaped from custody, and as a result, had been sentenced to nine years' hard labour at Sunbeam. You're obviously not smart, Corson told him when he arrived. If you were, you would have gotten away. Well, you're not getting away from here. I assure you of that. The feeling among the guards was that Mailford had made the Florida authorities look stupid and that if not immediately tamed, he may prove a disrupting influence among his fellow prisoners. The only way you're going to get along here, said Corson, is if you turn chain gang rat. We'll ask you to sniff out any trouble, and you come back to us with any news. Mailford grinned and told Corson to go to hell. Corson himself grinned 
and told Maleford that they were already there. For the next few weeks, Corson bided his time. The young man needed to be broken in, and so he waited patiently for the first cracks in Maleford's defiance. They came in the summer, when Maleford was suddenly taken ill one afternoon while working on the logs. The standard prescription for a bout of sickness was a cup of castor oil, which the groaning Maleford politely declined. Corson grabbed the cup, yanked Maleford's head back by the hair, and poured the oil down his spluttering throat. As Maleford lay gasping for air, Corson ordered another cup of oil for the poor sick boy. But when Maleford began to fight him off, Corson ordered in one of his boys, who began to thrash the prisoner with a three-inch wide rubber hose used to couple boxcars together. Corson and Higginbotham watched amusedly as the squealing, vomiting Maleford was thrashed senseless. And when the struggle began to die down, they joined in the fun kicking and stamping on the man until he passed out in a pool of vomit and blood. When he awoke the next day, he found himself stripped naked and being loaded into an empty barrel weighing 50 pounds. His head was pushed through a hole in the top and secured there by leather straps and pieces of wood nailed around his neck so that he could not free himself. His bare legs protruded from the bottom of the barrel. Imprisoned in this bizarre contraption, he was thrown into the yard where he spent a full day baking in the Florida sun while mosquitoes, flies and gnats ravaged the raw open wounds on his naked body administered by Corson's beating the night previously. When night came, the starving Maleford, still in his barrel, was thrown into the camp's sweatbox and kept there till morning. When he was finally released, Maleford's legs, crushed into distorted shapes all through the night, could not hold him up, and so he fell to the floor, still wearing his barrel restraint, and rolled across the yard. Corson and the watching guards began to laugh telling Maleford that he looked like an overturned turtle in the sand. Hours passed, and by the time noon came, Maleford had decided that escape was his only option. Gnawing at the leather straps, he found that he was able to wriggle his head free, lacerating his skin on the barrel as he did so. He grabbed a blanket, wrapped it around himself, and ran into the woods in a last-ditch attempt at freedom. But Corson's guards, headed by Solomon Higginbotham, soon tracked him down with the help of the camp bloodhounds, and a few hours later, his beaten, bloodied body was dumped in a heap at the feet of George Corson. Well, Arthur, he sighed. Looks like we're going to have to do something to stop you from running off. After all, the days here are too hot to be dragging these poor animals around the woods looking for you. 
He hauled Malefer to the middle of the yard and ordered him held down by several men. As he cried out in pain, Corson nailed his feet into a pair of heavy wooden stocks, then took a length of trace chain and tied it around Malefer's neck. Slowly, Corson hauled his prisoner through the dust and back into the sweat box. He threw the chain over the rafters, and slowly, painfully, he pulled until Malefert was upright once more. His feet in stocks, his neck stretched by the trace chain, Malefert began to beg for water. A bottle was produced, and Malefert managed a few sips before Corson smacked the bottle from his hands. You know, he said, if you can still drink, then that chain ain't tight enough. With that, Corson pulled the chain until Malefert's neck was stretched to its limit, his feet barely touching the floor. If his strength failed him, if he collapsed, he would be strangled by the chain. Corson tied the chain to the wall and ordered the men out. Even Corson knew that Malefert would be unable to withstand such a torture for very long. He'd been too weakened by the beatings and lack of food to be able to stand it all night. The guards took their meals, and forty-five minutes later, the sweat box was opened, and the lifeless body of Arthur Malford was discovered hanging from the chain, his eyes wide and frozen in terror. At the trial, Corson accused Malefert of deliberately hanging himself in order to escape the life of imprisonment that faced him. But medical testimony revealed otherwise, and one by one, Corson's guards began to tell the real story of the tragedy at Sunbeam Prison Camp. The nation was collectively shocked by the crime, but no newspaper was more vocal in their condemnation of the events than the New York Times, who called Malefert's death one of the most appalling and disgraceful stains on America's name in living history. Much of the summer and fall of 1932 was spent in outspoken damnation of the Florida chain gang system, and with the topic still fresh on the minds of the American public that winter, Warner Brothers released their new shocker, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, to sold-out houses. It was helped no end by the fact that the writer of the book upon which the film was based, Robert Elliot Burns, was still a wanted fugitive. His last escape from the brutal Georgia authorities had been in 1930, and he'd since then assumed a new identity and was running a toy shop in Newark. News reached him through his brother that Warner Brothers not only wanted to make a movie of his book, but wanted him to come to California as a consultant and so began an elaborate series of plans between Burns and the studio, who'd agreed to a vast number of watertight conditions that ensured that he would not be given up to the police when he came to Hollywood, and that they would use their best fixes to get him in and out without being spotted. He met with the director Mervyn Leroy on four separate occasions, as well as the movie star Paul Muni, who spent almost three hours listening to the details of Burns' ordeal. 
In the hands of Mervyn Leroy, the film became the socially responsible entertainment that Harry Warner had always dreamed of making. A movie that thrilled its audience, but also sent them home with a newfound desire to see society changed in some way. It is an unrelentingly grim film, but handled with such skill that the eye cannot be drawn away from the horrors it depicts. It ended up a soaring success for Warner Brothers, both financially and socially. The furious response to the shocking story of warped government authority in the backwards of American society did not die away this time. Questions were asked, and asked again. The newspapers did not drop the fight from their front pages. Slowly, reforms began to take place, and the practice of the chain gang began to die away, although they would not disappear altogether until 1955, when Georgia, the last holdout, abolished the practice. As for Robert Elliot Burns, the man still on the run at the time of the film's release, he was arrested at his toy shop one winter morning shortly after the film's sensational release by a police force reluctant to make an example of him in the wake of such a violent storm of protest. The Georgia law angrily demanded he be extradited to them for retrial, but under the full glare of the public eye, the state of New Jersey refused. After years of wrangling, Burns finally met with Georgia Governor Ellis Arnold in 1945 and asked him directly for a pardon. Arnold, moved by Burns' story, plainly told him that the only way to get a full pardon was to stand in front of a Georgia parole board and plead his case. If he didn't, then he'd be running for the rest of his life. The two men boarded a train and rode the long miles back to Georgia to face the music. On the day of the trial, Governor Ellis Arnold stood at the side of Robert Elliot Burns, the man that had exposed the vicious belly of their justice system, the man who'd brought down America's wrath upon their state, and argued honestly and with integrity for his freedom. After several hours of deliberation, the Georgia Parole Board commuted his sentence to time served, and Robert Elliot Burns walked out into the world a free man. He lived ten more years in broad daylight when cancer came for him and passed on from this world, arguably responsible for having forever broken the chains of thousands. The star of I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, Paul Muni, had been drafted to the Warner studio on a four-film contract and would eventually go on to star in a series of well-respected biopics, including The Life of Emile Zola and the Story of Louis Pasteur, a film that would net him the Academy Award for Best Actor. But up until the end of 1932, he was most famous for having starred in perhaps the most cold-blooded crime movie yet seen in Hollywood a viciously violent spectacle that would stun the world with its brutality. Its name was Scarface. Someday, I'm going to run the whole of work. Listen, little boy, in this business, there's only one law you got to follow to keep out of trouble. 
Do it first. Do it yourself. And keep on doing it. The film charts the rise of low-level Southside mobster Tony Camonte, who defies his boss, Johnny Lovo, and begins a violent turf war with the Irish Northsiders led by O'Hara. Eventually, Tony's growing power within the Southside gang causes Lovo to attempt an assassination on him in order to prevent his becoming boss. But the hit fails, and in retaliation, Tony murders his boss assuming power of the Southsiders, putting into action a diabolical campaign of violence and murder. Tony soon becomes the undisputed king of the city, but the higher the climb, the steeper the fall. Unlike many of its contemporaries, this film really was based on the rise of Al Capone and the events surrounding his ascent to power. First, and most obviously, Tony Camonte bears a large scar on the side of his face. He explains that he got the mark in a barroom brawl. Huh? Oh, that? That's an old business. You get used to that. I got it in a war. War with a blonde and a Brooklyn speakeasy. <laughs> Capone bore the same scar and got his one night while working as a bouncer at a nightclub. One of the girls at a table... Lena Galluccio had caught Capone's eye, and when he made unwanted advances to her, her brother Frank, who'd been drinking heavily all evening, whipped out his pocket knife and slashed Capone's face open three times. From then on, whenever pressed about the origin of the scars, he would mumble something about being caught by a German machine gunner in the First World War, even though he'd never been near the trenches. The second similarity comes at the film's beginning, where we watch Johnny Lovo and Tony Camonte murder their boss, Big Louis Costillo, so that they can use the mob to run a bootlegging empire, something that Costillo is opposed to. In real life, Southside boss Big Jim Colosimo was murdered, allowing his mob to move into the lucrative world of bootlegging, something to which Colosimo was definitely opposed. Although the killers were never caught, it was an open secret in gangland that the gunmen were Johnny Torrio and Al Capone. Johnny Lovo's attempted assassination of Tony during a high-speed car chase mirrored Jaime Weiss's assassination of Angelo Jenner, a fiercely devoted ally of Capone. In the film, Northside boss O'Hara is murdered by Camonte's men in his flower shop. In real life, Northside boss Dean O'Banion was murdered by Capone's friends in his flower shop. Tony's restaurant is shot to pieces by the Northsiders who arrive in a cavalcade of vehicles and unleash a hell of bullets in an attempt to wipe out the Southsiders. This, of course, happened to Capone when Jaime Weiss and Bugs Moran arrived with a small army and proceeded to destroy Capone's hotel headquarters. But perhaps the most infamous similarity between the careers of Al Capone and Tony Camonte comes at the 46-minute mark in the film. What is this, a pinch? No, just bringing you a valentine. Don't you know it's Valentine's Day? Oh, yeah, I forgot. Come on, line up, you guys. Over there. All seven of you. What's the gag? Is the heat on? Plenty. 
After the slaughter of Jaime Weiss by machine gun fire outside Schofield's flower shop on a cold October morning, a killing ordered by Al Capone, who feared Weiss more than any other man in gangland, the Northside gang mourned and looked to their own for a new boss. But instead of finding one, two stepped up to assume control of the Northsiders, the men who'd acted as lieutenants to both Dean O'Banion and Jaime Weiss. The first of these, Vincent the Schemer Drucci, was an oddity among the largely Irish gang. Tall, handsome, and proudly Italian, he earned his nickname the Schemer from the multitude of practical jokes he would play on not only the gang, but members of the public. His favorite was to dress up as a priest and approach courting couples on the street and remark on the girl's sex appeal. A delivery driver who'd arrived at Schofield's flower shop to drop off a booze delivery returned to his vehicle after having unloaded the back, only to find his cab filled with snow all the way up to the roof. Another favorite gag was to wrestle a fellow mob member to the ground, steal their shoes, and then hurl them far out of reach. Drucci once performed this trick on Jaime Weiss himself, throwing his shoes out of the flower shop window. A startled truck driver who'd slammed on the brakes when he saw the shoes flying through the air was even more startled to see Jaime Weiss waving a pistol at him and instructing him to throw the shoes back up, all the while cursing Drucci with every expletive at his command. In 1923, as part of a dare, he'd even starred in an amateur pornographic movie entitled Bob's Hot Story. But behind these high spirits lay a man as cold-blooded as his predecessors. As Lawrence Bergen wrote in his book, Capone, the Man and the Era, Drucci had a streak of recklessness and daring, and he looked the part of a gangster, tough, dark, and menacing, his expression frozen in a tragic mask, topped by wild, unkempt hair, and a face to haunt the dreams of his enemies. There was no killer as ruthlessly efficient or quietly sadistic as the schemer, and from the moment he stepped into Jaime Weiss's shoes, he began a personal campaign of revenge against Capone, who could only watch as one by one his men were snatched from the streets by the calculated plans of Vincent Drucci and returned some days later in pieces. So effective did Drucci's revenge killings become that Capone began to refer to him as the bedbug. Drucci's reign at the top of the Northside gang only lasted until 1927, though. Arrested for possession of a firearm, he was handcuffed and thrown into the back of a patrol car alongside Detective Dan Healy, a police officer with an almost pathological hatred for gang members. Accounts vary. The official line was that Drucci went for Healy's pistol, and to defend himself, Healy fought him off and shot him to death. But other witnesses claim to have seen Healy beating the handcuffed Drucci, then climbing out onto the car's running board and firing at the unarmed prisoner three times. He was hit in the leg, the arm, and the abdomen, and spent his last few moments of life gasping for air on the floor of the car before dying in the dust. 
He remains to this day the only organized crime boss to have been killed by policemen. His fellow Northside leader, the man that assumed control alongside Rucci, was slightly more successful in the role. Bugs Moran was a heavyset man that some assumed to be slow-witted, but nothing could have been further from the truth. He could see great potential in the controlling of unions and made huge profits by organizing strikes and blackmailing corporations in order to get their workforces to return. Under his leadership, the Northsiders' bootlegging operations began to fan out across the land, taking in other major cities and netting the gang millions of dollars each month. With Bugs Moran as their leader, the Northside gang of Chicago began to enjoy a golden age of prosperity. But more than money, Bugs Moran was concerned with one thing, the destruction of Al Capone. After having witnessed Capone's annihilation of his mentors, Dean O'Banion and Jaime Weiss, Moran determined that above all things, the eradication of Al Capone and the Chicago outfit would always take priority as long as he was boss. For a while, this arm of the operation was taken care of by Vincent Drucci, but when he died, Moran took on the task with relish. If news reached him that a Southside gang member could be gotten to, then they would be gotten to. The delivery of a battered Southside truck driver, for instance, became a daily ritual at Capone's hangouts. At least once a week, a Capone-operated nightclub would be burned to the ground. Almost half of Capone's liquor shipments would be hijacked. In fact, more than any of his predecessors, Bugs Moran was proving to be a barbed thorn in Al Capone's side. The public, drip-fed information on this so-called bootleg battle of the Marne, had begun to take these larger-than-life characters to their hearts. Capone himself was cheered hysterically by crowds at ball games, followed around the streets by gangs of applauding children congratulated warmly by charities to whom he gave generously. At restaurants, he would be fawned over by adoring waiters to whom he always tipped generously. And he was regularly photographed with members of the public, always keen to meet this modern-day Robin Hood, who spent thousands of dollars on soup kitchens to feed the unemployed. But the reality behind Capone's public image was so very different to the one being sold to the public. Prostitution had swelled to dizzying heights because of the immense number of Capone-owned brothels. Most of City Hall had been bought off by Capone, allowing him to use alarmingly violent methods to increase his power, while the police looked the other way. Bars that refused to take Capone's liquor were often blown up with hand grenades, known colloquially as pineapples. And yet, the public still loved him, along with the other folk heroes with the amusing names. Legs Diamond, Fred the Killer Burke, and Raymond Crane Neck Nugent. After all, despite the bursts of intense savagery that the city sometimes suffered, the gang violence was just that, 
a territorial battle between the gangs themselves that rarely strayed over into the real world of Joe Public, his homebody wife and their 2.4 children. The gangsters of Chicago were action men that the news-hungry folks of the city loved to read about in the papers over breakfast in the morning, but who they seldom ever needed to encounter. And while the bootleg Battle of the Marne was a violent pastime, at least there was honor amongst thieves. And then, in 1929, it all changed. At the end of January that year, Bugs Moran's rampage of revenge had dented Capone's operations to such a degree that Capone took drastic action. On February 13, 1929, Bugs Moran received a call from a truck driver who told him that he'd hijacked a shipment of old log cabin whiskey and that Moran could have it at the bargain price of $57 a case. Moran, always one for a bargain, agreed and told the driver to deliver it to the SMC Cartage Company the following morning, a garage on North Clark Street where Moran kept a number of his bootlegging trucks. The brief was simple. The driver would drop off the booze at 10.30am and Bugs and his boys would load it onto the trucks and deliver it around the city. The sky was an asphalt grey the next morning, Valentine's Day 1929. A light snow had fallen first thing and coat collars were being pulled around faces the city over to stop the wind from stinging. Six of Moran's boys arrived at the garage at 10.30 precisely. Moran's second-in-command, Albert Kachalek, the gang's bookkeeper, Adam Heyer, Albert Weinshank, a business owner who owed Moran a favor, the heavy-set Gusenberg brothers, Frank and Peter, who'd been sent to do the lifting, and Reinhard Schwimmer, an optician who'd fallen in with Moran's mob only recently and who was obsessed with becoming a real-life gangster. The six arrived, blowing into their clasped hands to warm them and nodded to the garage's mechanic, John May, who grunted a greeting to the men and carried on working underneath the belly of a truck. Tied to a truck across the way was his dog, a German shepherd named Highball. Bugs Moran himself had been woken the night before by the severe cold snap and had climbed out of bed to close the window. This action had disrupted his sleep and as a result, he'd overslept. Rushing to meet his boys and the shipment of contraband, he arrived 20 minutes late. And as he rolled along North Clark Street, the car in front of his stopped at his garage and two policemen got out. Keep driving, he said to his driver. I don't want to deal with cops this morning. Moran's car drove past the policeman to a coffee shop a few blocks away, where Moran decided to wait until the law had disappeared. Inside the garage, it was just like any other pinch. The six gang members plus the mechanic were hauled up, groaning against the wall, where the policeman relieved them of their firearms. 
They were instructed to turn around and place their hands against the wall while the guns were studied. But behind them, out of sight, the two policemen were acting very strangely. The guns taken from the men at the wall had been carefully placed on a nearby desk, and one of the lawmen had silently opened the door to the garage and waved. Within seconds, two men in business suits had slipped into the garage, closing the door securely behind them. And then, a dreadful silence fell upon the room. A silence that seemed to last an age, and which was only broken by the sudden howling of the German shepherd dog and the dragging ratcheting of a Thompson machine gun being primed for action. Before the seven men could turn to see what was happening, a hail of machine gun fire had begun to cut them to shreds in a blizzard of brick dust and blood as black as motor oil. The slaughter, which lasted for almost an entire minute, rang around the stone walls of the garage as bullets tore the seven men to pieces and exploded into the walls about them. When finally the last man fell, the two men in police uniforms stepped forward with sawn-off shotguns and began to pump clouds of bullets at the immobile bodies on the floor. Heads, arms and legs severed by the vicious swarms of gunfire. By now, the residents of North Clark Street had begun to grow curious about the popping noises coming from the SMC Cartage Company. They watched as two policemen ran from the door, followed by two men in suits holding Tommy guns. The car they climbed into screamed away into the city, and the metal door of the garage swung open to reveal a dense layer of acrid smoke that hung around knee height, as well as the mournful howls of a dog alone and mourning its master. The first patrolman on the scene was Sergeant Tom Loftus, who entered the garage to find the mutilated bodies of the seven men spread against every surface of the Clark Street garage. Unable to comprehend the horror before him, he retched violently and clung to the metal doorframe. And then, from somewhere within this hell, He heard a gargled gasp for air and staggered, shaking, into the nightmare before him to find the eviscerated body of Frank Gusenberg still clinging to life. Loftus sank to the man's side and gasped, Frank, Frank, do you know me? Sure, gasped Gusenberg with effort. You're Tom Loftus. And then before Sergeant Loftus could ask the question, Gusenberg managed, I won't talk. Nobody shot me. For God's sake, get me to a hospital. Capone's alibi was watertight. At the time of the massacre, he was sitting in a courthouse in Dade County, Florida, 
where he was keeping an appointment with Louis Goldstein, an investigator from Brooklyn who was investigating the murder of Frankie Yale, an associate of Capone and the man who'd assassinated Dean O'Banion back in the day. Capone arrived wearing a light flannel suit, pale grey fedora and the widest of grins. His alibi for the Yale killing was also unbreakable and so confident was he that he could outmaneuver the Brooklyn investigator that he hadn't even bothered to bring a lawyer with him. But as the interview in the humid, airless courtroom progressed, it soon became clear that Louis Goldstein had a different agenda. The questions did not seem to relate so much to Frankie Yale as they did to Al Capone's taxes. Blindsided, Capone began to stumble, until finally... He hammered his fist on the table and yelled, What has money got to do with anything? Goldstein smiled. I think that very soon, Mr. Capone, you're going to find out that the question of money and taxes is very, very important. By the time Capone stormed out of the Florida courthouse, News of the Chicago slaughter of seven men had reached the radios of America. In the days to come, graphic pictures of the crime scene would be splashed across every front page in the country, and even those who'd accepted the hidden war between gangs that took place on the back streets and alleys of the cities were appalled by the grotesque savagery of the wholesale slaughter on North Clark Street. Bugs Moran instantly released a statement, and in a rare violation of the mobster's code of silence, publicly accused Al Capone of orchestrating the crime, stating simply that only Capone kills like that. Weeks passed, and the nation's outrage only grew. Capone's celebrity status among the citizens of America was gradually overtaken by a feeling of hideous repulsion. Eventually, he released his own statement, half-heartedly accusing Bugs Moran of killing his own men. But nobody was buying it. The public's gently stewing resentment towards organized crime was suddenly boiling over. Everyone knew that a line had been crossed. And suddenly, the taste of contraband alcohol took on a bitter flavor. When Herbert Hoover became the 31st President of the United States on March 4, 1929, he did so on the coattails of a promise to clean up organized crime across America. The most malign danger today, he stated in a speech, is disregard and disobedience of the law. Crime is increasing. Confidence in rigid and speedy justice is decreasing. Immediately, he began to ask about the law's progress in arresting Al Capone, the man widely acknowledged as the mastermind behind the most vicious killing in gangland history, a crime that the press were now calling the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The arrest of Capone and the comprehensive cleanup of Chicago's mob culture would demonstrate to an expectant American public his determination to strenuously enforce the law. And little by little, the gangland bootlegging empires of the 1920s were dismantled and sold for scrap. 
1930, Frank J. Loesch, the chairman of the Chicago Crime Commission, devised a way of publicly denouncing those who'd committed crimes but could not be tried for lack of evidence. I had the operating director of the Chicago Crime Commission bring before me a list of the outstanding hoodlums, said Loesch, known murderers, murderers which you and I know but can't prove, and there were about a hundred of them. And out of this list I selected twenty-eight men. I put Al Capone at the head and his brother next, and ran down the twenty-eight, every man being really an outlaw. I called them public enemies, and so designated them in my letter, sent to the chief of police, the sheriff, and every law enforcing officer. The purpose is to keep the publicity lights shining on Chicago's most prominent, well-known, and notorious gangsters to the end that they may be under constant observation by the law-enforcing authorities and law-abiding citizens. The list, which was widely publicized and circulated, featured Al Capone at its head, the public enemy number one, and the phrase soon entered the public's lexicon. The list idea would later be appropriated by the FBI, who used it not to publicly shame those who'd gotten away with criminal acts, but the most wanted fugitives in the land, proven lawbreakers who were still out there and who posed the most dangerous threat to society. This version would come to be known as the FBI's most wanted list, which is still heavily used to this day. As for Capone himself, the unquenchable desire to bring him to justice led to authorities trying a different tactic. If they couldn't pin the St. Valentine's Day massacre on him, then they'd have to resort to their plan B. Capone's brother, Ralph, had been imprisoned for three years in 1930 for income tax evasion, and fearing a government investigation into his own earnings, Capone instructed his lawyer to set his own tax records straight. In fact, the government were in the process of investigating Capone's income taxes, but had hit a stumbling block. They couldn't prove how much he'd earned, since almost every penny had come from illegal practices, and paperworks and receipts were highly unlikely. Secretly, they'd begun to lose hope in using this path to prosecute him. It was at this time that Capone had decided to clean his books up. In order to set his house in order, however, his lawyer had to make an offer to the government based on money he'd earned for the past few years. Therefore, investigators were delighted when they received an official letter from Capone's lawyer stating that over the preceding years, Capone had earned somewhere around $100,000 per year. It was all they needed. Capone was arrested and brought to trial for income tax evasion, the letter from his lawyer proving that he'd earned vast sums of money but hadn't paid a cent in tax. He was found guilty and sentenced to 11 years in a federal prison, a sentence that began in May of 1932 at the Atlanta U.S. Penitentiary. Upon arriving, he was checked over by the prison doctors who found that he was suffering with advanced syphilis and gonorrhea, as well as withdrawal symptoms from a years-long cocaine addiction that could now no longer be fed.
1934, he was transferred to the newly opened Alcatraz Island Penitentiary, where the syphilis developed into neurosyphilis, rapidly destroying his mental faculties and rendering him constantly confused and bewildered and no longer able to take care of himself. In 1939, he was paroled and given over to the care of professionals, where after an examination by psychiatrists, it was discovered that he had the mental capability of a 12-year-old child. He lived out his days at his Florida mansion as an invalid recluse in the care of his family, where in 1947, he suffered a stroke and contracted pneumonia. On January 25th of that year, cardiac arrest reunited him with his many victims, who no doubt felt aggrieved at his relatively peaceful death. As for Bugs Moran and the Northsiders, the intense police scrutiny following the St. Valentine's Day massacre saw to it that any illegal activity was seriously hampered. The Northsiders gradually lost power in the area, and knowing when he was licked, Moran left Chicago and went back to petty crime, drifting throughout the country, only appearing from time to time to commit a hold-up. He spent the next few decades in and out of prison, but in 1957, he was sentenced to 10 years for robbery and lived out his final days at Leavenworth Prison, Kansas eventually succumbing not to the rattling bullets of a Tommy gun, but to the inescapable clutches of lung cancer at the age of 63, outlasting his bitterest rival, Al Capone, by a full decade. But the sudden loss of leadership in the ganglands of Chicago did not end the criminal empires that ran like veins through the back streets and underbellies of the invisible city. Crime became altogether quieter now that the flamboyant fireworks of prohibition had ended. New figureheads took silent control and moved into labor racketeering, gambling and loan sharking, as a means to expand their financial interests, and from the 1930s onwards, would grow outwards steadily, with tenacious, ruthless fingers, to assume an altogether quieter power over the hearts and vices of America. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to continue this epic story immediately, then go on over now to patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Hear every thrill, every drama, every heartbreak, every spellbinding moment. Unlock the secret history of Hollywood now at patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. And thank you.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.